Our Father, our great delight is in the gospel. We have discovered it to be far better news than we ever dreamed. That we as, as sinful souls have had our sin paid for by the sinless Savior. Indeed, O oh God, it is a message that is beyond compare. It is one that thrills us at the base of our souls in a way that nothing else has. It is something that has brought peace to so many of us when we thought no peace like this could ever exist. It has brought a sense of freedom from guilt that plagued us for so long in our lives. It gave us a purpose to live. It gave us meaning in terms of how we unfolded our lives. It, was, it is a message, O oh God, that from start to finish is authored by you. Salvation is of the Lord and Him only. And we are the grand recipients and benefactors of your great grace and love. We are a people bought with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves. We are a people whose highest loyalty in life is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We long as a people this morning to take His yoke. Because we've learned to see it as being easy and light. Father, stir up within the hearts of your people a grand beginning all over again in that gospel that is so beautiful to our ears and heart. Our Father, we continue to pray for our nation as she's in some very um, uncertain, uncharted waters. We thank you for the uh, victories that we have seen in this past week. But, oh God, we do not celebrate victory over an enemy. We, we want to be on the side of righteousness wherever that's found. And righteousness may not be found in our foreign policy. We want to be on your side, whatever side that is. And, Father, I pray that you will help us to see ourselves as citizens of the city of God and not the city of man. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven, uh, not citizens of America. And yet we love this land that you have so blessed, O oh God. We believe that we are blessed only because of you. Not because we're smarter or uh, more full of creativity or ingenuity, but because you have shed grace upon America. Be with our president, who we believe to be our brother in Christ. Guard him, give him good counsel and good direction. Our Father, for brothers and sisters who limp in here this morning, who have spent um, worrisome nights or a worrisome week, I pray that you will give us greater refreshment as we gather with your people and sing songs of praise and hear messages from your word. Oh God, might all of that combine to lift up our spirits and to thrust us back into life better prepared to face what we have to face. Now, Father, accept our gifts. We thank you for generous people who comprise Gracie Van and pray that our generosity would not shrink, but our generosity would grow as we see the needs around us becoming greater. We commit ourselves to you afresh and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the 14th chapter of the book of Judges. 
As we continue our study of the book of Judges, with particular reference to a man whose name is Samson. You follow as I read, beginning at the first verse of chapter 14. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, a young lion... Roaring, uh, came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart, as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. When he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young women used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought thirty companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, Let me pose a riddle to you, if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast. Then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothing. And they said to him, Pose your riddle, that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, Look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother. So should I explain it to you? Now she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her, because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people, so the men of the city came to him on the seventh day before the sun went down. What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
Gang, I, I think you know that there's, uh, there's a couple of ways that we can learn lessons from the heroes of the Bible. Uh, the first way, of course, is to see their great uh, commitment to the things of God and to emulate that commitment. But another way that we can learn is to learn in the negative. We can see the things that they do and, and avoid them. Um, for instance, Abraham, who is the father of the faith. In fact, the father is considered the founder of three world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But Abraham, one of our heroes, no sooner had he obeyed God and left his family and headed off to an unknown land, that we find him headed down to Egypt and lying about his wife. We don't want to do that, guys. That's the part that we don't want to emulate in terms of Abraham. We don't want to lie about our wives or anything else. So there's a way that we can learn in terms of emulation of the positive and a way that we can learn from avoidance of the negative. Well, Samson is older now in chapter 14, but apparently no wiser. As Samson grew, his story doesn't get any better. It only gets worse. Little by little, his character was being chipped away. And so it is. Deterioration, ladies and gentlemen, is never sudden. No garden suddenly overgrows with weeds. No church suddenly splits. No building suddenly crumbles. No marriage suddenly breaks down. Lightning doesn't strike out of a clear blue sky. Storm clouds must first gather. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, certain things are, are now acceptable that used to not be acceptable. They used to be rejected on our parts. Uh, things that once we considered hurtful are now secretly tolerated. At the outset, it appeared harmless, perhaps even exciting. I mean, I was only gambling for entertainment. And then that, whatever it is, drives a wedge that leaves a gap that grows wider and wider. And, and then the erosion joins hands with spiritual decay and the gap has become a canyon. Folks, in the physical world, they have a name for this. It's called erosion. For Samson, the erosion is silent but steady. Erosion, say, of a coastline uh, is, is made more dangerous because you're, you're not aware that it's going on. Uh, there's a whole lot happening, but there are no warnings. There's no signals that go off. It just happens in a slow progression without announcing itself. But just because it's silent, folks, doesn't mean it can't be devastating. But my interest this morning is not... Is not in coastlines, ladies and gentlemen. My interest has nothing to do with the erosion of a coastline. As you might can tell, my concern is about the erosion of a soul.
the erosion of spiritual character. And hopefully this story about Samson will be a warning to us about the erosion that can take place in the soul of a man or a woman. I want you to notice how the erosion begins. It's, uh, <laughs> it's comical, but very significant that the first words that come out, the first recorded words that come out of the mouth of Samson are these. I saw, I have seen a woman. And an off-limits woman at that. She's a Philistine. Um, that's all it took. Just a piece of visual stimulation. We men are like that, aren't we, guys? He meets her much later in verse 7. But uh, from here, that is from verse 2. Uh, I saw a woman. The downward spiral has begun. It's interesting in the Hebrew, um, the original language, of which this is the translation, the Hebrews had a way of emphasizing things. And the way that they emphasized things was uh, due to location of words. The first, were, the first word was always the most em- emphasized word, and the last one was the second most emphasized word. Well, in this brief five-word sentence, and it's not even five words in the Hebrew, the first word is, take a guess, woman. Woman, I have seen. The emphasis is on woman. (coughs) Folks, um, we see his parents entering in verse 3. And they're trying to talk him out of this, talk some sins into their strapping young baby boy. Trying to talk him out of some stupidity. Imagine this scene. You ever had one of these scenes in your own home? Trying to argue with a teenager, uh, and we don't know exactly how old Samson was, but trying to talk some sense into one of your kids. And, and it finally kind of blows up. Um, and when Samson, in the last half of verse 3, looks at his father and he says, Get me, get her for me. I'm tired of talking, get her for me. Which was the custom in that period where parents arranged things. And, and my text says, for she pleases me well. But if you've got the, what, the kind of Bible I've got, which is the New King James, you'll notice in the margin that again, the Hebrew says, she is right in my eyes. It's in my margin. So for the second time, Samson has emphasized that she really looks good. She's right in my eyes. There was a, a country and western song, and, and um, normally, ladies and gentlemen, I'd rather I'd rather take a dose of paragoric than listen to country and western music. But um, there was a song I heard a couple of years ago, and the and the uh, and the major line in this country. You may remember this. I don't know who sang it, but he said the major line, kind of the refrain was. He's talking about a woman, and he said uh, she was easy on the eyes, but hard on the heart. Oh, my. 
This little Philistine woman was easy on the eyes, but so hard on the heart. Twice in the first three verses, we read that this Philistine woman looked good, and that was enough for Samson. He liked what he saw. There is not one word in this passage about her character. Why? Well, because Samson is not at all interested in character. Uh, he doesn't have very much of that commodity himself. She is never given a name. Why? Because it doesn't matter what her name is. I know this is somewhat dated, and, and some of you who are younger than I will never, never even remember this group, this singing group. But back in my uh, college days, there was a singing group that kind of bled over my college days. And the name of the group was The Doors. And one of their greatest hits from The Doors was a song that went like this. Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? What? I thought that was comical as a college student. You mean you've fallen in love with her you don't even know her name? Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? And that's what he'd say all and on and on. I said, you idiot! How could you love somebody and not know their name? Samson did it. Samson doesn't meet her until verse 7. And then, notice, there's got to be some significance, ladies and gentlemen, of the repetition of the verb went down five times. Verse 1, Samson went down. Um, verse 5, so Samson went down. Verse 7, he went down. Verse 10, he went down. Verse 19, he went down. Five repetitions of, he went down, he went down, he went down, he went down, he went down. Samson is sinking, and he doesn't even know it. Right off the bat, ladies and gentlemen, we see that the lust of the eyes becomes Samson's entrance into a process of an eroding character. Ever so slightly, these invisible moral and ethical germs begin to invade a soul, bringing with it this, the beginning stages of a terminal disease, an oversight here, a, a compromise there, a, a deliberate looking the other way, a yawn, a nod, a nap. And before we know it, a chunk of character has fallen into the sea. It happens to individuals. It happens to marriages. It happens in families. It happens in cultures. It reminds me of a, a line out of a letter that John Steinbeck wrote, Adley Stevenson. You remember that name? He was the Secretary of State in, I want to say, the Eisenhower administration, but it might have been, it might have been later than that. But uh, John Steinbeck wrote to Adley Stevenson and said, and I'm quoting, There is a creeping, all-pervading gas of immorality. <laughs> a creeping, all-pervading gas of immorality which starts in the nursery and does not stop until it reaches the highest offices, both corporate and governmental. A creeping, 
all-pervading gas of immorality. It started slow. It started in the nursery. But then it ended up in the White House. It's all erosion, ladies and gentlemen. The gases may vary. In the life of Samson, you know, I could spot three things. Pride, you know, who's as strong as I am? Or um, independence, kind of a self-sufficiency. I can do anything. And then there's a love of pleasure. Oh, how he longs for the lap of Delilah. Samson's guilty of all of that. My question is, are we? Did that make you uncomfortable? That made me very uncomfortable. I hope it made you that uncomfortable. But it began with some deliberate decisions, ladies and gentlemen. It's happening in our culture. There is a sociologist historian by the name of Carl Zimmerman who wrote a book entitled Family, Civilization, Family and Civilization. And he mentioned eight specific patterns of domestic behavior that typified a downward spiral in a culture. Eight specific patterns. Listen to these. Marriage loses its sacredness. It's frequently broken by divorce. Traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Feminist movements abound. Increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. Acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. Refusal of people with traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities. Growing desire for and acceptance of adultery. Increasing interest in and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, that was written in 1947. We've made a little progress in 54 years, haven't we? But again, gang, you must understand that cultures are made up of people. And I'm not particularly concerned about a culture. I'm, my major focus this morning is you and me. Has erosion of our souls begun? Is it proceeding underneath our noses? Is it well underway? Have chunks of character already been forfeited by us? And how would I know? If I, if I wanted to correct it, how would I know if it's begun in me? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are some hints in this text. Now... They're not enough hints, but there are a few that we can isolate and concentrate on. That is, some hints as to whether the erosion has begun in our own souls. Number one, when we value appearance more than character. Bible heroes, ladies and gentlemen, are guilty of that. Samson one is one, Samuel is another. Remember when he went to go anoint David as king and he didn't know it was David and he went to the home of Jesse and he started off the top and they, oh, that one's beautiful, I'll take him. 
And God says, wait, 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 just a minute. I don't look like you look. I, you know, I don't look on the exterior. I look on the interior. So get rid of him. But Samson made that mistake. Or Samuel made that mistake. But guys, again, I'm not too concerned about Samuel. I'm concerned about us. Placing a greater value on appearance than we do on character. I'm afraid our culture's got, got the market cornered. Frivolous plastic surgery. I have in my hand an article that my daughter Megan gave me. It will appear in next month's edition of Vanity Fair. Um, I have never read Vanity Fair. I confess that Friday night I looked for one. Couldn't find it. But the article that is going to appear in Vanity Fair is on D.C. interns. Washington, D.C. interns. Now, you might know that that would be of interest to me. Because my daughter is in D.C. and she began a political career as an intern. She is now a legislative assistant for a congressman up there. But here was an article that is included in Washington D- in Vanity Fair magazine, uh, magazine about the intern. And we're talking about the females. And it's about one particular D.C. intern. They even name her. They got a picture of her. She's gorgeous. Gorgeous. Drop dead gorgeous. Her name is Diana Davis. She is a recent graduate last summer of um, Fordham University. Right girl. But she came to Washington looking for a job. Um, you know, one of those high-paying intern jobs. 17000 But that's not what she was really looking for. And she confesses that. She wanted to bag herself a senator. That's a quote. Came from her own mouth. And so she got her start by going to her congressman's office and they turned her down. Because they had a freeze on employment of those who were outside their district. She was from Maryland. She went to a Michigan office. But then uh, the congressman saw her. And so he lined her up with a buddy of his. And let me read you three paragraphs. Diana Davis graduated in June with good grades but zero political experience. Still, she says... She thinks she leapfrogged over thousands of applicants to a job on the Hill because the first man to interview her liked her looks. As an attractive young woman, you are easily able to manipulate certain situations, she says. Her interview, more of a chat, was at the office of an East Coast Republican representative. She says the chief of staff there was bummed when he was told that there could be no vacancies for anyone outside his district. So he referred Diana to his friend Chris Cox, Roger's chief of staff. In Roger's office, there were, they were prepared to make an exception for the fact that Diana lives in Annandale and not Michigan. The day after interviewing with Cox, she had the job. And we all know why. Some of the uh, senators and representatives whose names are mentioned in this article, they're Democrats and Republicans, and my daughter knows some of them. 
But because there is this love of appearance, oh, she leapfrogged thousands of applicants because she looked good. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to hasten on, but tell me this. What is it that you're spending the most time developing these days? Now, when you've got old men like me in their dotage, we, we've gotten beyond that because we had to, you know? We used to think we were cute. I don't think that anymore. But um, what are you developing? Uh, who have you hired lately? Did you hire the best or the prettiest? What are you promoting your kids? Character? Or some kind of appearance? There's a second hint in the text. When one loses sight of his responsibilities before God, you can tell that erosion is taking place. If you can flip over real quick to chapter 13, verse 5, uh, we find this, these words. Um, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. That's why he was called into existence, to begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. But you know what? <laughs> I don't see a whole lot of delivering Israel out of the Philistines on the part of Samson. Because he's lost sight of the responsibilities that he has before God. He spent, spent very little time delivering Israel, ladies and gentlemen, but he's occupied with some other things. Uh, Samson is mainly into pleasing himself. That whole riddle of him, he should have never been involved in. He's asking for trouble. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, some of us have forgotten that we, when we received Christ and stepped into his kingdom, that he was to be the highest loyalty of our lives forevermore. Where do you see any hint of such a priority in Samson? You don't. But again, I tell you, my major concern is not Samson. Where do you see any hint of such a priority in me? But there's a lot of evidence that could be found in my commitment to please myself. Our calling gets smothered under a pile of trivia and, and uh, distractions, pleasurable events. Thirdly, you need to know, ladies and gentlemen, that when Samson went down on one of these trips to see this woman, he killed a lion. And then on another trip that he made, he noticed that inside the carcass of the lion, uh, a beehive was now in there, and he reached in and gave and took some honey. Well, do you understand that his doing that violated a Nazaritic vow? He was not to touch anything dead. That little sidetrack cost Samson his whole commitment because he began to play fast and loose with holy things. Guys, um... You doing that? Finding more and more reasons to miss corporate worship? Uh, 
the very non-existence of any type of private worship. Uh, the Ten Commandments that used to be really a concern about your life, that is, you wanted to obey them, you know, there's, there's not much obedience anymore. A compromise over known principles of righteousness. All of that, ladies and gentlemen, all of that will add up to spiritual erosion. Small chunks that begin to collect with other small chunks. And before you know it, a big chunk has dropped off into the sea. I want to read you, and we're, we're almost finished here. Stay with me. I want to read you a, a fairly lengthy quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's a name that many of you know. And he's talking about this whole reality. Listen to this. These are stirring words. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and, it, and, and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world or, or of nature. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And now his falsehood is added to this proof of strength. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The power of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Powers of the body, the mind, and the will which were held in obedience under the discipline of the word of which I believed that I was the master make it clear to me that I am by no means master of them. All my powers forsake me, laments the psalmist. They have all gone over to the adversary. The adversary deploys my powers against me. In this situation, I can no longer act as a hero. I am a defenseless, powerless man. God himself has forsaken me. Who can conquer and who can gain the victory? We can. Let me close, ladies and gentlemen, with this three suggestions as to how to perhaps avoid erosion or reverse it if it's begun. First of all, you must understand that the awareness of our weakness in this area is the beginning of our safety. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, secondly, think hard. Don't lie to yourself. You need to ask and answer a few tough questions. You need to compare the way you are today with the way that you were months, maybe years ago. Look, within, look inside your moral standards. That once strong commitment to ethical excellence. Do you see any termites in the timber? An ugly erosion may be taking place, ladies and gentlemen, that you haven't bothered to notice. Just because things are silent and slow doesn't mean they can't be devastating. You need to be very alert to the pitfalls of prosperity and success. Gang, thirdly, the solution, of course, is in repentance. 
which Martin Luther called a way of life for the Christian, or at least should be. And here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. Psalm 130 states, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? Nobody. But there is forgiveness with thee. There's forgiveness with thee, ladies and gentlemen. If the erosion is taking place, understand that there is forgiveness. But it's time to repent. And fourthly, from the text, you will notice that the 30 Philistines that uh, Samson has posed this riddle, the 30 Philistines go to his wife and say, entice him. Apparently, they already see that that's his Achilles heel. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, if you are headed down a slippery slope, it's pretty easy to notice for your brothers around you. Go to somebody that you know and love and trust and ask them, do you see any erosion in my soul? And then together, begin to take steps of accountability and to move away from these ethical and moral spiritual compromises. Guys, we have to quit. But you remember that old story about boiling the frog in a beaker in high school biology and little by little you turned up the heat and he finally was dead. Well, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully this story about this increasing heat in the life of Samson will get us out of a whole lot of hot water. My brothers and sisters in Christ, let's get this corrected before Delilah shows up. And it's too late. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will encourage your people that there is hope, that there is a solution for the moral compromises that we see, and that we can turn this corner and become once again strong men and women for Jesus Christ. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet met the Savior, might they see their need for Him and what they've heard. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.